Hi, this is Paul. I want to follow up on my video about common personal religion. I actually renamed it uh, this morning. I, I I don't like renaming videos or re-thumbnailing them once I publish them, but because of the pace at which I put out videos and the just the pace of my life, sometimes after a night's sleep, after a little bit of thinking about it, I think, okay, well, maybe... Maybe maybe this is a maybe this is a better title for it than the other thing. So, the video I released today today is the twenty third of of January is about common religion because okay we want to talk about Islam we want to talk about uh, religion we want to talk about all these things and getting a handle on what on earth we mean by this word and the history of the word as we use it is pretty important. And this also gets into the topic of civilizational religion, which is what I started with Jonathan Peugeot. Jordan retweeted my conversation with Jonathan. That, that never produces what people think they produce. A two, million, a two million follower Twitter account might produce maybe a thousand new hits on a video, something like that, depending on the video. So it's, it's, never, it's never what you think. Since the, since the world impact of secularity, religion, in quotation marks, has become a thing of individuals. Now, this is, even, even in that sentence, a whole range of, that, that, that's, that's completely a modern, Western, even in some senses, a Protestant realization and definition. And the rest of this video unpacks that. Um, this is another tell of the powerful formative influence of Christianity on secularity. In many ways, secular humanism is a sort of Christianity light and even Protestantism light. Now, with this is part of the reason that I'm delving into Islam, uh, the ARC conference, postmodernity, the urban monoculture, the recession of modernity. We all brought this question to this. Uh, this. This is the question that's at the surface of so many things right now. So many, well, at the surface of, this is the question that is roiling politics, religion, war. I, in, in many ways, this struggle is churning beneath our culture and our world. It is in some ways beneath the uh, part of what's beneath the Ukraine-Russian war. It's definitely beneath many of the struggles in the Middle East. It's definitely beneath the dechurching and the um, what's happening culturally in North America and in Europe with respect to religion. And there's a history to this, and I want to give sort of the broadest, quickest walkthrough of this history. Orthodox and Catholics have a history with these issues, and part of the reemergence or part of the emergence of Orthodoxy in America is about this. Part of the Christian nationalism conversation is about this. Um, the Protestant Reformation sort of punts with the Peace of Augsburg. Okay, let the let the leader of the state decide the religion. In some ways, that's a very ancient way of resolving the challenge of religious pluralism. The invasion of European democracies by immigrants from the Middle East who are Muslim 
is renewing and and in many ways inflaming the conversation because all of this talk that I've been doing in previous videos as to whether or not Muslims can live in the advanced Christendom, let's say post-Christendom, has everything to do with this. And even the very interesting little question of the modern state of Israel. Every time I talk to Hezi and many of us are Israeli friends, this is what dominates my imagination. We the, the assumption that was supposed to be the end of history did not prove to be the end of history. And so that's why all of this is super salient. So let's go back in time. Let's go all the way back to Hammurabi, his style, the code, polyistic patrons of the kings. That's what the gods were. These gods within the metadivine realm, they were the patrons of the kings. And so when empires or kingdoms fought, they were the empires and kingdoms on earth were proxies of the gods. And so when Israel lost, everyone assumed that her God was second rate. Now, obviously, the Hebrew prophets sort of undermine this. And we'll talk a little bit about revolutionary monotheism versus evolutionary monotheism. But the status quo in the ancient polytheistic world, and now we could be returning to something like that, is kings were portals of the gods. And, and kings had a, had, a, had a divine patron or a series of divine patrons. And, and therefore, the empires, which were sort of personifications of kings and emperors, also had divine patrons. And so the god, so Romulus and Remus, um, were, well, they were under the god of war. Um, Rome is deep into this, okay? Even though there's quite a bit of flexibility and transaction going on, you just look at the Greek city-states. They're, you know, Athens, Athena. They're, they're, they have divine patrons. Now, there are other gods that are in play, but there's a patron god for the city. And, and this, of course, is part of what provokes the reaction to Christianity when well, the Jews, they were, they, were, they were a minority and they were sometimes tolerated. And because of their uh, deal with Julius Caesar, the, the Jews could sort of get out of having to pay homage to the divine Caesar. But the Christians had no such pass. And that's part of what sets up so much of the, so much of the animosity between Christians and the Roman Empire until Constantine. Kingdoms and empires were vehicles by which the gods expressed their dominion over the earth. Individuals, families, clans, tribes, vassal states could relate to gods within these structures. Hierarchies developed, but again, you know, Athena is the patron of Athens. Accumulation and absorption of gods in evolutionary monotheism. This is sort of the direction that Jordan Peterson goes. I think that's a reality to a degree, but I don't think that's the best way to understand the Bible. Ezekiel Kaufman, uh, Christine Hayes, those videos that I've spoken about for years. You have revolutionary monotheism. And, and basically Israel sees her God as her God is an alternative to this metadivine realm. I played in that little clip, Tom Holland noticing that, you know, the the there's this tension with Roman and Greek gods that they're 
Well, they're under the fates. Well, then what are the fates? Are the fates gods? Is it a metadivine realm? They didn't have that term. Of course, Ezekiel Kalsman comes up with that term. But you have all of this tension going on. So, of course, for the Hebrews, you have one God over creation. Now, the degree to which this developed, I mean, that's a, that's a huge conversation with respect to the Bible and biblical history, henotheism, uh, monolatry, monolatry, et cetera, et cetera. You can see this in the book of Daniel, for example. Um, the book of Daniel, you have these monsters, the empires, they're raging across the earth. And then in Daniel 7, the Ancient of Days sets up thrones, stills the beasts, and then a son of man comes with the clouds of heaven to, uh, in, to receive an eternal empire that, 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 that the son of man rules. Now, obviously, Christians see Jesus when he takes on the son of man term as part of that narrative. Others see other messianic, um, others see other messianic figures in terms of that. And we're going to talk about messiahship in this. Those of you who follow my rough draft for Sunday will have a pretty clear idea about what I think about that. Now, let's talk about civilizational Judaism and Torah. So here's Charlton Heston, uh, 1950s, a previous a previous iteration of Hollywood, which very much had civilizational Christianity, which in the middle of the 20th century tried to bring in the Catholics and the Jews. This is some of what happens in the middle of the 20th century as the United States goes from being a predominantly Protestant nation attempting to be a Judeo-Christian nation. And of course, along the way, you come into a certain degree of multiculturalism. So if you read the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, it's clearly a civilizational blueprint for, within the narrative, the children of, e the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, and you know there's all the symbolism and the archetypal stuff, and it's, it's this whole civilizational blueprint that's set up with specific laws to govern the people of Israel. It's set up as a covenant. So you can, you can sort of see the relationship with something like Hammurabi, and biblical scholars have been noting these both similarities and differences between the, the system of the Hebrews and the Israelites as compared to some of the surrounding nations. So the Mosaic Code is given to govern what today we would look at as a kingdom. Um, the Lord is the, uh, is the patron of the king of Israel, and the king of Israel is the vassal. He's he's in a covenant relationship. He is told to love up because the the under party loves up to the dominant party, and so you have the suzerain vassal covenants. And covenantal theology has gotten into this stuff for for years. The Lord as the king of the world, Israel's king is governing below, and and there's always sort of an implicit imagination that. There's, there will be a messianic king, someone who will govern the world beneath the king of the world. And so that universalism is set up within the Old Testament vision of you know, how the world should be, that the Lord will be in heaven, his king will be on earth, and under that king, the whole earth will be his dominion, and it will be ruled in that very ancient way of the the, of the God, the king, and then the whole world under that empire. Now, this, this doesn't come to be. David rules a, 
a, a, a significant little kingdom right there in the middle of the world, while both Egypt and the Mesopotamian powers are, are weak. But the Hebrew prophets are then going to have to wrestle with these things. So, of course, when the temple is destroyed, there needs to be a new story, a new theology that takes that into consideration. Of course, the Lord shows up to Ezekiel outside of Babylon, and, and so you have a reworking of the story so that the the destruction of the temple is part of this far larger picture. But again, as you see in the book of Daniel, the picture is in that sense maintained that the, uh, the, God's, the God's son of man will rule over the entire earth. And of course, Jesus sort of steps into this, but we'll get to Christianity in a minute. Laws come from God. Laws are updated and interpreted by teachers of the law, by rabbis. You see a lot of the tussling between Jesus and some of these parties while they're under Roman domination. And of course, under Roman domination, the idea is, well, we've got to break free because our rightful place is at the top of the hierarchy. Our rightful place is at the pinnacle of the world. And from there, we will rule over all of the world. Now, of course, there are many, many, many different variations, subtle variations of this. And as religious traditions develop and deal with the realpolitik of the world, there'll be all sorts of coping and strategies and justifications and exceptions and different formulas for this. But this is the base narrative. And, and this is sort of civilizational religion. And so this is civilizational Judaism and Torah. And you can see how it's similar to the the religion around Israel, but yet it's different. And so there you have awaiting the fulfillment and the Messiah. So you can go back on how many of my very interesting and enlightening conversations with Jacob, for example, who, you know, they're waiting for a Messiah. And so when they look at Jesus, well, Jesus is not the kind of Messiah they are looking for because Jesus gets crucified. Now, Again, I am just sort of wading slowly into this, um, the, the case of Islam, but I, in many ways, Islam continues this ancient narrative that, that, that Israel sort of continues and sort of modifies because instead of being a meta-divine realm and all of these different patron gods, you have one god over the earth, and so there should be one king over the earth or one emperor over the earth. And, well, that actually sort of plays out in Islam with respect to the caliphate. Now, again, I have a view of the, of the, of the pluralism under... Christianity with respect to these topics. I have a little bit of inclination with respect to Judaism and these topics, but in Islam, I'm, I'm sure that it is just as complex. The conversations are just as complex with respect to this. But from what I can see and what tends to emerge again and again is, well, the caliphate. Well, what is the caliphate? The caliphate is an institution or public office under the instrument of an Islamic steward with the title of caliph. A person considered a political religious successor to the Islamic prophet Muhammad and a leader of the entire Muslim world. Historically, the caliphates were polities based on Islam, which developed into multi-ethnic transnational empires. So you can see this older version of empire manifesting and forming. During the medieval periods, three major caliphates succeeded each other. 
the Rashindun Caliphate, 632 to 661, the Umayyad Caliphate, 661 to 750, the Abbasid Caliphate, 750 to 1258, and the fourth major caliphate, the Ottoman Caliphate, the rulers of the Ottoman Empire claimed the caliphal authority from 1517 until the caliphate was abolished as part of the 1924 secularization of Turkey. That, in many ways, sort of shows the the collapse and the um, the conquest of Islam, and this this obviously has not been lost. But now, once you have this, gets into okay, God number one and God number two. When Islam is defeated in the First World War and the Caliphate is abolished, how do you read that? Well, it's the will of God. Okay, well, you have these issues again and again through history. Read the book of Jeremiah. God will never allow, he's the God of all the earth, he will never allow his temple to be destroyed and humiliated by the likes of the Babylonians. It happens. How do you have to deal with this? Well, you cope. Well, you, you have a new story that says, well, um, God is not bound to the temple in this way. And you can see the religion of Israel change and modify and you have synagogues and it gets spiritualized in a sense it gets immaterial in a sense the same struggle over the crucifixion of jesus is the same this is the same issue well jesus is supposed to be this eternal this eternal son of man who is there to rule and he gets crucified therefore he absolutely cannot be that because he lost but he rose from the dead he ascended to heaven you see in the christian story all of this is contained so that Jesus continues to rule over the world right now. But now you sort of have a, a conflict between kingdoms. So you have the kingdom below and you have the kingdom above on earth as it is in heaven. You have all of these tensions. Well, Islam has the same thing. When Islam conquers much of Christendom, at least in the east, Islam says, well, you know, if you make the argument, I've had Christians tell me to lighten up on the Tom Holland thing because, well, if you say Jesus conquered Rome and Rome gets switched to Constantinople, you're, you're just sort of leading into the Islamic argument that, well, Islam is the successor to Christianity. And just as Jews don't think Christians have it right with respect to Jesus, Muslims think Christians don't have it right with respect to Jesus. And so, well, clearly Islam won. But then Islam lost in the First World War, and you have the destruction of the caliphate. So that one video that I played with Tom Holland talking about uh, Reformation and Islam, that was all during ISIS, because ISIS said, we're going to resurrect a caliphate. And, and so what you see in the, the world of Islam is all of this tension, will a ruler emerge? Now, many Islamic countries are ruled by strong men. And, and, of course, Saddam Hussein wanted to sort of uh, present himself as a neo-Nebuchadnezzar, of course, until he wasn't. So, in a certain degree, with, with, the, with all of these religions, what finally happens down below is revelation of what is true above. Okay? That's, understanding that dynamic is super important, and that's very much God number one and God number two. So, you have these caliphates. Throughout the history of Islam, a few other Muslim states, also um, almost all hereditary monarchies, such as the Maluk 
uh, Sultanate in Cairo, the Ayyubid Caliphate, have claimed to be caliphates. Not all Muslim states have had caliphates. The Sunni branch of Islam stipulates that, as a head of a state, a caliph should be elected by Muslims or their representatives. Shiites, however, believe a caliphate should be an imam chosen by God from the al-Abayat, the House of the Prophets. In the early 21st century, um, following the failure of the Islamic Spring and related protests, some have argued for a return to the con concept of a caliphate to better unify Muslims. So now what you can see there in sort of the Sunni and the Shia branches are, this is, this is what I say, there's a menu of options when something happens. And the interpretations tend to follow along certain lines. And so when I watched that video uh, from eight years ago, of debate whether Islam needs a reformation. And I agree with many of you who put in the comments, I think it's terrible language. I don't think it's great language. I think Carl, uh, who's who's been both hot and cold on this channel, um, Carl says needs an enlightenment. I think that's a more honest thing of what many in secular Europe and the secular West say Islam needs. They need to go through the enlightenment. And, but you have to understand that there's this other conversation where Christians are saying, you know, the Enlightenment is the fruit of Christianity. And, of course, some now with, with, with orthodoxy say, no, the Enlightenment is a heresy of Christianity and must be undone. All of these tensions over the Enlightenment, all these tensions over modernity. But to say that Islam needs an Enlightenment is, in that sense, sort of like saying Islam needs a Reformation, basically. Islam needs to be further Christianized because Christianity is seeping into Islam through the internet. And just like with the modernist fundamentalist fight in Christianity, the fundamentalist becomes sort of the, the bizarro, it's, it's Girardian mimetic rivalry where modernists and fundamentalists are sort of mere opposites of each other. Now, all of this fight over Islam, again, when you look at, when you listen to the people are selecting things on the menu, and it's a fairly limited menu, you find that, well, look at this. The more they try to fight against modernity in this sense, the more modern they become. This is an old story. This is very much what happened to the Roman Catholic Church in the Protestant Reformation. The more they tried to fight against the Protestant Reformation, the more Protestant they became. This goes all the way through to Vatican II. In a sense, one way to understand Vatican II is the more they try to respond to the modern world, the more they become like the modern world. And that's the, that's the reactionary's dilemma that if you're fundamentally reactionary, you are just going to become the mere opposite of that from which you are reacting. Because the thing that you are reacting against is setting the menu of the issues. And again, back to what is at the key to this little corner, combinatorial explosiveness. Selection is a big part of ontology. So a lot of that's what's been happening. So what we've seen is that, well, in many ways, the roots of Islam are a continuation of the very old story, incorporating revolutionary monotheism, and then all of this. Now, Christianity. Christianity has that code in its DNA but Jesus does something different that I believe sets up secularity. 
Christianity is a radical changing of the messianic script, right from the Gospels forward. Can a Messiah be crucified? Can a temple be destroyed? Now this is, in a sense, a spiritualization. Jesus ascends on high and reigns, but his followers are always sort of left to figure out, well, what is the will of God? Well, God number one, the will of God is what happens. God number two, everything that happens isn't exactly what God wills. Now, this isn't just Jesus that sets this up. This goes all the way back to the destruction of the temple. This goes all the way back to the fact that Israel never ruled the earth. Rome ruled the earth. Persia ruled the earth. Greeks ruled the earth. Egyptians ruled the earth. Babylonians ruled the earth. Communism wanted to rule the earth. All of these, you hear Tom Holland talk again about universals. All of these universalizing movements. Well, it's all coming from the same place, and it's all coming from it's all coming from the revolutionary monotheism. What does the ascension of Jesus mean? It means he Jesus is Lord. Not Caesar is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Caesar was ruling over the earth. No, Jesus is ruling over Caesar. How does Jesus reign? Well, through the Holy Spirit. What is the, what is the perfect will of God and what is the will of God the best that we can? Just listen to evangelicals. Just go through these will of God conversations. I listen to Muslims and I listen to, I listen to other groups going through them and it's like you know, they're, hitting, they're hitting all of the points on the menu. How should Christians relate to the pagan emperor? And now this is in many ways where the Apostle Paul comes in and Paul and Peter say, Submit to the emperor, because God number one-ish, the emperor is appointed by God. And people would say, why would God appoint such an emperor? This goes all the way back to the book of Daniel. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, the guy who destroyed the temple, well, one way to deal with the loss is that, well, your God, God was over it. God appointed Nebuchadnezzar to destroy the temple. That's how to deal with that narrative, the destruction of the temple within the context of a king-patron situation. Well, God appointed Nebuchadnezzar to destroy the temple. Therefore, Nebuchadnezzar, via God number one, is God's king. So then Daniel serves that king. But then God pushes Nebuchadnezzar out, pushes Belshazzar out, and in comes the Persian. And Cyrus is... He who's, he's the servant of the Lord. Well, of course he's the servant of the Lord because he's the emperor of the world. And Cyrus then has the temple rebuilt. So you just watch these narrative blocks fall. The end of the book of Revelation, of course, Jesus returns and conquers. The story is closed. Okay, Jesus is the king of kings. But how is he king of kings? And so right there, you can see the stress lines in these narratives between Jews. My friend Jacob says, um, yeah, it's not the kind of Messiah we're looking for. You have your Messiahship wrong. And you can go back to conversations that Jacob and I have had a couple years ago. And that's exactly where we wind up. He says, you have your Messiahship wrong. I said, well, this is, this is where we differ, Jacob. We differ in Messiahship. And this has everything to do with these civilizational religions. Christianity, Jesus, the Gospels, Paul changes the narrative on this and um, does so in many ways sort of following the Hebrew prophets. That's what Christians say. And of course, along comes Constantine and it's kingdom come. Just, just read, read Eusebius. 
you know, for, for Eusebius, Constantine is sort of, he's not, nobody's going to put Constantine up there with Christ, but Constantine is kingdom come. The kingdom finally comes. And so that's where you get palaces and um, crowns and all of the, and robes and all of this. Constantine is kingdom come. And notice how this, how Protestants tend to have a negative view of Constantine. Well, Orthodox and Catholics tend to have a positive view of Constantine. But these tensions are within Christianity. And we're still dealing with these tensions today because these tensions are built into all of the conversations about Christian nationalism built into all of this stuff. It's the reintroduction of a system of divine patronage. So if you look at some of the scholarship around Constantine, well, um, Sol Victus. So, so what, what, what exactly is Constantine's God? Because you can listen to Tom Holland talk about at this period, you have the, all of these emperors moving in and moving out of power. And they're all looking for a divine patron that can hold the, hold the empire together. And when Constantine basically has a vision and under the banner of Christ conquers, well, suddenly it works. So God number one and God number two come together under Constantine. And, well, here it is. Now, of course, the details, you know, read David Potter's Constantine the Empire. The details are really complex. Was Constantine a Christian? Was he an Aryan Christian? And so what are the motivations of Constantine? Well, is, are his motivations fundamentally religious or political? Well, of course, that assumes something that develops, has been developing, but really crystallizes far later, where you have a separation of the two realms. For Constantine, they're really one realm. He's looking for a god that will cement his power and his dynasty. Now, that sounds very mercenary. You can flip it on its head and say, he's looking to align himself with the reality of the cosmos, because the kingdom that aligns itself with the reality of the cosmos best will reign. You can hear Richard Dawkins say almost exactly the same thing. You can hear that under the Alex O'Connor-Richard Dawkins conversation. Can't you? Because Richard Dawkins basically says, well, science gives us truth, and so those who do science properly will inherit the earth. Okay, well, this is kind of a rearticulation of the motivation of Constantine, because get heaven right. It's the rearticulation of Socrates, of Plato, of almost everyone in very much a God number one world, where God number one and God number two, God number one might be the metadivine realm, God number two might be your patron God, but you want an entire system that is coherent. Now, again, generally speaking, people like an immaterial system. That's what we get in science because it, with, with an immaterial system, I, as a person, have a chance of reigning. And almost all of sort of the, um, look at Avatar, look at many of the New Age films sort of have an immaterial, have or the reification of the metadivine realm. And so, but here's the thing about people. The personal wields the impersonal. It happens all the time. Now, the personal and the impersonal are always in a struggle, but the personal has will. If you're going to be fair about the impersonal, it has no will. It plays no favorites. It just is. 
And so once the personal, a la combinatorial explosiveness, can begin to look at and select within the combination of things, well, now you have power. You know where to put your troops. You know the ideas to settle on. You know where to make your investments. You know which scientific paradigms, Thomas Kuhn, the history of scientific revolutions, you know which scientific paradigms to back. You know which country to immigrate to. Your choice is your power. And now we're knocking on the door of the free will question. So you have the reintroduction of the, of the system of divine patronage, but now it's at the heart of Christianity. Look at the Christian. Uh, look to the Christian God as your patron. Well, if he's the true God, then you'll win, and he does win. Rule below in the mode of an Hebrew King Messiah, and in some ways, Constantine is the. Well, when so, when Eusebius sees Constantine as kingdom come, well, it it makes sense to Eusebius because this is how that whole narrative has been developing. Jesus' revolution in messianism gets a whole new layer of complexity because, well. Well, well, who, who really is ruling? And so Constantine wants to listen to the priests. That's the role that the priests paid, played in the old system. But, but what to do with bishops? And what to do with the bishop of Rome? Because if you have to listen, if you're dependent on the bishop of Rome for what's coming from the divine... Now, you can see these tensions even in the old divine patronage systems, but they really come into play in Constantine. Now you have Rome, and then you have Constantinople, and Constantinople basically replaces Rome in the eyes of many as the, as, as the, place, of, the place of the coming of the kingdom of God upon the earth. And, and even with the Orthodox, when you listen carefully to them, you can sort of smell that narrative through what they say and do. Now, of course, the difficulty is Islam, because, well, the Hagia Sophia was first a church, and then a mosque, and then a museum, and then a mosque again. It's like, okay, so when the Muslims say, well, it's clear that, because if Constantinople is the center of the kingdom of heaven, we own it. Islamabad, Istanbul, we're going to rename, we're going to reacquire all of these buildings and set them in the proper order, which is the divine patronage model. Except we don't have a caliphate because the European, you can see why things are a mess. Nobody's got a clean narrative. Tom Holland's book that is too ignored, Millennium, which is, some, is, which is in some ways dominion before there was dominion, where he begins to walk through this question of the Pope and the creation of the secular. Now with Pope Gregory and uh, Henry, well, one of the things that the Pope sort of does is within the imagination of the divine patronage model continues, but what, and Tom Holland I think is very right on this, and it's a genius insight, when Gregory makes the move he makes, he carves out the seculum. Now these tensions are within Christianity already. And so when Tom Holland writes Dominion, he goes all the way back to the Hebrew prophets. Rightly so. Because when the temple is destroyed, 
the divine patronage model for Israel breaks down. How are you going to deal with it? Well, you have revolutionary monotheism that says God is in heaven. God is pulling the strings on Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus and Caesar and, 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 and Putin. And name any dictator you want. It's all within God's plan. Now, of course, when the second millennium came rolling around, we had sort of been through this before, and that's that's some kind of the beauty of Tom Holland's book, Millennium, where he deals with this. Now, of course, the Eastern Rome was still in power. They called themselves Romans. The Western Rome was very much in play. And so the Eastern Rome is like, no, here's the kingdom. And But then, of course, comes Charlemagne. And now you have an emperor crowned by the pope who sits in Peter's sea. You can see why these two churches move away from each other. They've got competing claims in some ways to God number one. In the Latin West, the compromise between church and state creates the secular realm, a split heaven and earth in terms of administration. Now, again, this isn't new. You look at Jesus, look at my sermons on the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is attacking a status quo kingdom. And nobody likes it, but Jesus is overthrowing Satan in what he's doing. And that, of course, gets into the Christian narrative. You have an ongoing discussion for a memorandum of understanding between the two, and in some ways that's sort of what happens with the seculum and the eternal. Is the emperor, king, messiah, caliphate the mediator between heaven and earth, or is the church? Now and not yet. I'm sure you have those tensions in Islam as well, because, you know, there have been some long stretches where you had a fairly stable caliphate, but isn't it interesting that kingdom come was sort of located in the same place, both for the Eastern Orthodox and the, um, and the Muslims? But, of course, in the West, in the Latin West, kingdom come was in Rome until it wasn't, and in some ways the Protestants spiritualized it to an even higher realm. Now, dualisms abound in here. Uh, physical, spiritual, physical, spiritual substance, Descartes, heaven and earth, secular and eternal, now and not yet, science and religion, natural and supernatural. So you have all of those dualisms, and then you have competing stresses to bring them together. Jesus is Lord, on earth as it is in heaven. The will of God, one will of God. You know, I've seen some of these Muslim, you know, debating the Trinity. And so, you know, some of this gets sort of pushed into the questions about the Trinity. And again, people are like, well, why Tom Holland? Why so much Tom Holland? Well, you give me all this grief about Jordan Peterson. Um, a lot of Tom Holland, too. Because Tom, more than anyone else, has really followed these threads. Well, maybe you're just getting them from threads from Tom Holland. Maybe Tom Holland has colonized you. Well, the way arguments work is that you lay out the information and you make an argument based on the data. And I don't think I would have come to Tom Holland if, in fact, I hadn't been doing all of this work in the Bible and in ministry and thinking about politics and religion for a very long time on my own. And then when Tom Holland comes along, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Could I be wrong? Absolutely. But I think I think Tom's narrative is, is quite right. And, and now some will sort of knock Tom by saying, well, he's not an academic. Well, okay. But 
part of the difficulty of academics is that they're tied down to one, they have to live in their silos. Part of the, part of the benefit of a popularizer is you have to pull things together. And so part of what I think Tom Holland and Jordan Peterson have in common, even though they're very different people, are they're both synthesizers. They're both trying to pull broad areas of knowledge together into one package. And you say, well, well, that can't be done. Yeah, but we're all doing it. Every time we choose, every time we act, every time we speak, we're speaking out of our synthesis. We all have them. So you have the modernity and secularity sorted out this invention of religion. Religion was a way to categorize all of this. Secularity's success within modernity offered the world a two-state solution to the problem of heaven and earth. Atheism tried to address the conflict by banishing religion. Mostly not working, as he usually does so well on Twitter. He's got all of my memes in one thread that he continues to put together. I know who he is, um, but he, he stays anonymous. Uh, here you have this meme of new atheism basically giving, the, uh, giving religion the heave-ho out the door. Between 20, uh, um, 2004 and 2024, thinking, up, oh, got that taken care of. And now he looks behind him and religion is right behind him again. Mostly not working. Terrific meme. That's where Jordan Peterson and the ARC conference come together. Because the heart of what Jordan Peterson has been doing is saying, not only is it religion, but it's Christianity and the Bible that is under the West. And you can't understand the West without Christianity and Bible. And you can't enjoy the fruits of it without Christianity and the Bible. All of these, all of these roots go back to the Bible which is a very Protestant move, but um, Jordan in many ways has, is deeply, it's a deeply Protestant influence, but you know, he's, he's always sort of working on Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, some of these, these questions. Religion can't be banished because it's actually beneath all the systems we use to make sense of the world. You lose the fruits of the West. If you lose Christianity and the Bible, the West must be revived and that requires institutions, even the church. Will the Holy Spirit inhabit the masses? Because just it's very interesting. Just look at that note with the caliphate. Oh, democracy. Well, that, that doesn't. When you look at God number one and God number two, in some ways, the entire Roman Catholic councils or popes. It's sort of councils are God number one, popes are God number two. You know, all of those tensions are built in at a very deep level into religions that all come from this root of the Torah and of the Hebrews. Um, I found one thing. i got to keep my eye on the time. I'm always trying to balance both my day job and my YouTube job, which there's a degree that they blur together, but often I'll have, you know, I'll short... <laughs> I always have to short somebody, so this week I'm shorting the YouTubers or the YouTube audience because I'm trying to catch up on all my in my in real life appointments and lunches and um, relationships. So, but I want to go. I want to show you a video that Algo just fed up to me, and um, yeah, it seems very on point. Okay, this lecture given one month ago by DC Schindler, someone very much. Uh, 
corner adjacent, if not all the all the, if not in the corner, depending on what corner of the corner your your focus is on. Uh, America's theological political problem. What he does in the first part here is sort of lay out exactly what I've laid out here. The title of my paper is "America is a Theological Political Problem," um, and I will explain what that means uh, as we proceed. The contemporary political philosopher Pierre Manent begins his celebrated uh, 1987 book, An Intellectual History of Liberalism, with a chapter entitled, entitled Europe and the Theological Political Problem. Therein, one finds a striking passage right near the beginning of the book. He says, quote, organizing men's social and political life is not the church's raison d'etre, but by its very existence and distinctive vocation, it posed an immense political problem to the European peoples. This point must be stressed. The political development of Europe is understandable only as the history of answers to problems posed by the church which was a human association of a completely new kind. The key to European development is what might be called in scholarly terms, the theological-political problem." End quote. According to Manent, <clears throat> the essence of the problem, the problem that he claims the Catholic Church posed to Europe, is the following. On the one hand, the church is not a political entity the purpose of which, if it were a political entity, would be to organize human existence in the world. But instead, the church is concerned essentially with, with the life to come, the eschaton, which lies beyond the horizon of this world. On the other hand, Manent continues, because what we do in this world cannot help but bear on what happens to us in the hereafter, to put it sort of simply, the church has a tendency to get involved in human affairs and thus constantly to encroach on the political sphere. So in other words, he says, this is, now this is Manent's position, while the church is by definition unconcerned with politics because the kingdom is not of this world, nevertheless, it inevitably does get involved in politics. And that's a problem. That's, a, that's for Manent a contradiction, a problem. Manent goes so far as to call this dilemma, and this is a quote from him, a contradiction embedded in the church's doctrine. End quote. These words suggest that the problem is not accidental. Instead, uh, the problem is essential to Catholicism. And again, I'm laying out Manent's position here. What we have here, in other words, is not just a worrisome tendency for the church to overstep the bounds she sets for herself, and thus to betray her doctrine, but rather a drive to follow her doctrine and precisely for that reason to run into contradiction with herself. Manent does not say exactly what doctrine he has in mind in making this claim beyond the somewhat vague description of the church's aim to be both otherworldly and thisworldly, but one suspects at the core is the extraordinary paradox of the incarnation. 
because you might say a kind of transgression of theology into the domain of human nature would seem to be necessarily implied in this central Christian mystery. Without ceasing to be God, the second person of the Trinity became man, and he is fully and uncompromisingly the one, while also being fully and uncompromisingly the other. So uh, we'll come back to this point later on, uh, the incarnation. But for now, I simply want to note that Manent seems to take this doctrine, or at least its implication, to be a problem that threatens the free unfolding of life in this world, even while it claims to liberate that life. So uh, according to Manent, it's crucial that we recognize that this, what he calls the theological political problem, is something specifically Christian, or in fact, uh, he's emphatic about this, specifically Catholic. He explains that uh, with Judaism and Islam, we also have religions that lay claim to the way we live in this world, and thus lay claim they get involved in the political sphere. But for Manent, um, that's not a contradiction in, their, in those instances. Why? Because there's nothing in their teaching that would obviously suggest that they shouldn't do that. They're sort of, they, there's nothing about the liberating of the natural sphere um, in the teachings of Judaism and Islam. So they're sort of naturally theocratic, you might say. Okay, it's specifically Christianity according to Manent, that both affirms the integrity of the secular order of nature in itself, which is to say it liberates the temporal order, life in this world, to proceed in, on its own terms in a certain sense. And Now, you can see that when you get to the point that we have today with, let's say, conversations with the new atheists, questions about, let's say, a traditional Augustinian narrative about creation, fall, redemption, how that is supposed to intersect with evolutionary patterns, um, when does death come into the story, all of these kinds of questions, this separation of, you're going to have some separation in terms of, well, what does the physical record how, do the, how does the physical record, sort of God number one, impact the narrative record, sort of God number two, in terms of the cohesion of your story? And denies that integrity and separation by subjecting the secular order constantly to theological judgment, measuring by its eschatological aim. Okay, so this is Manen's position. <clears throat> Manent's larger claim, then, is that if we want to understand the essence of Europe, the heart of European identity, or we might say the essence, really, of modern Western civilization, we have to understand that identity as constituting itself precisely in and through the attempt to relieve this particular contradiction. Manent concludes his brief opening chapter 
with a paragraph that contains a succinct statement of his thesis. So uh, here's a quote again from Manent. Quote, only by looking at this theological political problem does the subsequent political development of Europe become intelligible. One can present the problem in an almost mathematical form. Given the characteristics of the Catholic Church, find the political form X that makes it possible to ensure the secular world's independence." End quote. So the rest of his book then is to try to show how the modern liberal nation state is the X that turns out uh, to best protect, you might say, the secular sphere from the incursion, intrusion of the church. So in some formant, the phenomenon of European liberalism is best understood as a problem, sorry, as a response to the problem set in motion by the Catholic Church. So that's, that's his thesis. <clears throat> I hope that's clear. Um, the aim of my lecture now, this afternoon here, is to flip the script, so to speak, uh, with respect to that thesis. I want to argue that whatever merit there might be in Manent's account is a historical matter, and I think, I think it's actually very insightful to uh, interpret the development of the modern nation state as a kind of response to Catholicism. I think that's actually incredibly illuminating. Nevertheless, in terms of the essence of the matter, I think he has it exactly wrong, exactly wrong. So I'm going to argue that it is in fact the liberal regime that poses the theological political problem. And that ultimately the only solution to the problem is the Catholic Church. Okay, heck of a heck of a heck of a teaser. Now, I haven't listened to it past this, so I'm 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 the edge of my seat, except I've got a lunch appointment and then two conversations after that, so I probably won't even get to this today. I might not get to this until later tonight, but um, but that's where we're at. That's where we're at in the conversation, because well, liberalism has been spun up, and now modernity is receding. Modi is, you know, is uh, dedicating this temple to Ram over what had been a mosque in India. The Hagia Sophia is being turned from a museum into a temple. Christians around America are saying, well, what they're really sort of saying is make, Christ make America Protestant again. Well, well, we'll include the Catholics this time because they seem awfully Protestant to us now. They didn't seem that way 100 years ago, but today they're A-OK -okay because of all of these other reasons and, 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 and. So I think that's where we're at. And I look forward to listening to the rest of his argument. And um, I look forward to reading your comments. So leave a comment. Let me know what you think.